0: Open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14. We're going through the book of 1 Timothy together as a church, although we're going verse by verse through it, but I'm skipping around a little bit, and I'm driving all of our linear people crazy because they would like it if I would just go one verse at a time without jumping to the part about others or the part about whatever. So here we are making our way through the book, although we're skipping around, and we get to 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, and today we're talking about the future of our salvation. Uh, we're talking about the return of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is soon to come. That made me think of some of my most favorite movie kings um, that I could list. If I had to pick my favorite movie king of all of the movie kings, I think I would pick, I think I'd have to go with from the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn. Right? Right? Celebrity wedding, Liv Tyler, the whole thing, you know. But here we have Aragorn, the king, who was to return to his... And I think if I had to pick my least favorite king, the king I hated the most, I think I'd probably have to go with Edward the Longshanks. Why aren't you booing? You should boo him. Come on. (laughs) I think if I had to pick my favorite animated king, it would probably be, of course, yours too. The Lion King would probably be my favorite. I feel like I'm handing out Oscars here. The award goes to the Lion King. Uh, when you think of king, you know, we don't have one uh, anymore here in the United States. So we have to think of like, you know, many different types of kings out there. But listen, one of the things Jesus is, is he's a king. He's a great king. And he is a king who will soon return. This is the future tense of our faith. We're going to talk about the return of Christ. We'll talk about how that plays in to our faith, to our church, and to our lives. But first, let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we want to know what's coming. We want to know what's ahead. We want to know what the next chapters of salvation hold and how this applies to our lives. So we just pray that you would give us a heart to hear this morning what you have to say to us. And show us, Lord, what you have planned for those who love and fear you in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I hope your Bibles are open, and I hope that you're planning on taking notes with your bulletin, because if you're an engaged listener, you're going to hear a lot more of what the Lord has to say to you. If you're just waiting for a few nuggets, maybe one or two things by the end of the morning, man, so much is going to pass you by. So many awesome truths are coming at you this morning from God's Word. I hope you've got Dumbo ears on this morning, waiting to hear what God has to say to you and to us through His Word. Here it comes, First Timothy 6. Verse 14, Uh, we're picking up mid sentence where we paused last week. It says this To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Uh, It says here to keep the commandment unstained. This is the main idea of the whole sermon last week and this week. You can write this down. The review is this We're supposed to guard the saving truth about Jesus. To keep it, means, it means more than just to keep it in your pocket, you know, like to have it somewhere on you. It means to keep it safe, like put it in a vault, you know, and surround it with security. It means to keep, to guard it. So we're guarding, it says here, the commandment that's used in the New Testament of just the gospel of Jesus or the things we believe, right? So we're supposed to protect it. Here's a picture last week I showed you of a knight who's standing guard at the entrance to some Who knows what it is? But I wouldn't mess with him. Would you mess with him? And the gospel is going to be attacked in the church. The idea is if we don't keep it, if we don't protect it, it's going to be taken from us. Then we will have nothing of eternal value to give to other people. So we have to guard it, guard the gospel of Jesus. It says here, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So write this down. That means be spotless of guilt in life, and in doctrine. Keep it unstained, that's spotless. And it has to be free from reproach, so there's there's no guilt. Spotless of guilt in life, how we live, and in doctrine. How we behave, what we believe. We have to make sure we're not dousing the gospel with filth by the way we live. We have to make sure we're not warping and twisting the truth that we've heard by what we teach. But we've got to protect it from sin and from compromise. That's really the whole point of the message is we're supposed to protect and defend and guard the gospel. But the Bible goes on to give us reasons why we have to guard the gospel. And that's really the rest of the message. Why? Why must we guard the gospel? It says here, keep the commandment, verse 14, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Write this down. Because Jesus will return soon. Guard the saving truth about Jesus because Jesus will return soon. It says that it says that the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. You have God the Father who will soon display or unveil or reveal God the Son. Soon. Jesus will appear. He's coming back. And God the Father is seeing to it. We have to understand a couple things here. First, you have to understand how important it is that it's God who's doing the sending. We'll know who it is that's doing the sending by the end of this text. You also have to understand who it is that's being sent. The greatness of the one sending him and the greatness of the one being sent. But let's not forget the point. Based on the greatness of the sending one and the one being sent, guard the gospel, the truth about Christ. He's going to return soon. Our faith has a past tense. There was a point in the past when Jesus died, he was buried and he rose again. He then then had the power to give you eternal life. And is there a point in your past when you understood the truth of the gospel, which is you stood convicted of being sinful in God's presence? There's nothing you can do to take away your sin. But he sent Jesus to die for you on the cross to rise again so that by faith in him, you can be set free. Do you have a story of a time in your life where you embrace that truth as if your eternal life depended on it? If so, your faith has a starting point. That's in your past, though. Your faith also has a present tense. Jesus didn't just say, well, glad you're ready for heaven. I'll see you in a few decades. He goes to work every day in your heart. Jesus said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And whatever you go through, Jesus is walking through that with you. That's the present tense of your faith. But your faith has a future tense. He's coming back. And the future tense is the most exciting part. How are we supposed to think or feel about the return of Christ? Well, we're supposed to live with great anticipation of this event. And the way the Bible shows us how we're supposed to feel about this is by giving us a comparison. It, it tells us something similar to what's coming and it shows us that that's about how we're supposed to feel about it. So in Revelation nineteen seven, it says this. Let us rejoice. Actually, look, why don't we do that right now just to act this verse out? Here we go. Let us rejoice. <laughs> Woo! And exult and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself Ready? The Lamb of God is Jesus, the Bride of Christ is the church, that's you. So how are we supposed to feel about the return of Christ? We're supposed to feel like a bride who is already ready for her wedding, and the groom is coming soon. This is a picture of a bride who is already ready. She's waiting, the hair's done, the dress is radiant. She's holding the flowers. The scenery is gorgeous. It's a beautiful day. And look at how she's waiting for the moment that will soon change her life because she'll be joined to the one that she loves. Wow. We're supposed to live with that same eagerness to receive Christ back. It's as if everything is ready and the wedding is about to begin and all we need is Christ to return. She's ready. It's not like you're ready, like ready for, ready for lunch, ready to go to school. It's not like you're ready even for like a date, you know. She, she's going to go on a date with me. I'm so excited. I'm ready for the date. It's far beyond that in readiness. It's ready for the moment that will change the rest of your life. Wow. How are we supposed to feel about Christ's return? We're supposed to be standing at the window Filled with great joy and expectation. We're supposed to be ready. Are you ready? Are you getting ready? The implication here is that the bride is getting ready. She's getting ready. She's excited in her attitude and she is in her her look. She has prepared herself for that day. Are you ready? Are you getting ready? Or are you just sitting there in sweatpants? Hair up in a ponytail. Big old bucket of chicken. Oh, you're here? Where's my dress? Are you ready? We're supposed to be ready. We're supposed to be getting ready for the return of Christ. The Bible tells us in many different ways that we're not supposed to lose our anticipation of Christ's return. The Bible says don't fall asleep right? Don't fall asleep. Don't drift off into a drunken stupor. We're supposed to be ready. Revelation 22, 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And then the author, the apostle John responds by saying, amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's the last verses of the Bible. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Wow. Second Timothy 4 8 says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, this the return of Christ. Not only to me, but to all who have get this, to all who have loved his appearing. Hey, Jesus is going to return soon. Do you love the thought of that? Do you love the thought of Christ coming back for you? If you do, we have to guard the gospel. We have to guard the gospel as a church, in your heart, in your family? I I went to four years of Bible school, and I could have saved a lot of time because I found out that the Old Testament really is basically just about one thing. The Old Testament got the world ready for Christ to come. That's it, four years of school for that. I just saved you, seminary. Write it down. And you know the New Testament? You know what the whole New Testament is about? Every verse? The New Testament is getting the world ready for Christ to come again. In the old, it got the world ready for Christ to come. In the new, it got the world ready for, it's getting the world ready for Christ to come again. That's the whole Bible. He's going to return. He came down and appeared once to bring salvation. He'll come back and appear a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, when we talk about the end times, when we talk about the future of salvation, sometimes people get nervous because there's scary things in the book of Revelation, right? You read the book of Revelation, you're going to have nightmares, Dragons and beasts and horned animals, right? They don't even want to go there. Teach it to the kids in children's ministry and they're going to be freaking out. So we often don't really want to talk about the end times. Plus, it's confusing. Nobody really knows exactly how things are going to pan out. But I'd like to give you just a basic broad brushstroke look at what's coming in the future of our salvation so you can know what we're excited about. This is a basic diagram. Looking back, you have the cross. Jesus died for you and me, rose again, and then was exalted to the right hand of the Father. The church age began at Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on God's people and sent out to reach the world with the gospel. Now, what's coming next? Well, we believe that there is going to be a seven-year tribulation period on this earth. Seven of the worst years ever imaginable with war and earthquakes and famines, and we think that's coming. Christ is returning in fullness and glory after that period. Now there's controversy over, will Christ come at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation to take his church up with him that's called the rapture? You know what? And good people disagree about that. You know, and I, I can say, I don't know. Uh, some of our elders think Christ comes at the beginning of the tribulation to rapture up the church. Other of our elders think that Christ comes at the end of the tribulation in full glory and power with this church. I don't know. We don't tell you that you have to believe one or the other. We're not like, you've got to be pre-trib if you want to come to this church. If You're not pre-trib, get out of here. You know, Some churches, it's like doctrinal watchdogs trying to police every little thing you believe. But you know what? You can believe several things about the tribulation. We have pastors in our fellowship who believe Christ comes at the beginning for his church. Some say he comes in the middle. Some say he comes at the end. I don't know. Um, But he will come in glory and power and in the fullness of his reign at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And we believe that Christ will rule for a thousand years on this earth. After that... Then comes the time when the sky rolls up like a scroll and earth flees from God's presence and everyone who ever lived is brought in the final judgment and then permanently you go to heaven or hell. We believe that comes but after Christ rules for a thousand years. So we're looking ahead to the return of Christ and we're looking ahead to when he comes for him to establish the kingdom of God on earth. That's the future of our salvation. Now, Often when people start learning about the future of salvation, they get so confused that they treat it like a puzzle and they never really get excited about it. You know, sometimes they get angry about it. Oh, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. They get really angry and really technical and they're not happy. We're supposed to be primarily happy, right? The bride's not at the window being like, oh, I think he's going to pull up at this time and then I think he's going to be wearing this and then, oh, you don't think? She's like filled with joy because he's coming. And likewise, the church is supposed to be primarily filled with eager anticipation for the return of Christ. That should be our primary reaction to this truth. The bottom line is this. Jesus is coming back to take us home. Are you excited about that at all? Does that fill you with joy at all to know that Christ will return for us soon? Amen. 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 If you believe that is true, you will guard the gospel because you know that Christ will return. And therefore, if we let go of the truth about him, we'll be in bad standing when he returns. Guard the truth, why? Well, because he's going to return. But here's the next one. It says, he will display at the proper time, verse 15. Now, who is it that's sending him? He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Write this down. Jesus will soon return, sent by the sovereign ruler of your universe. You can fill that in. Sent by the sovereign ruler of your universe. Who is it that's sending Christ back? The only one who is blessed and sovereign. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's being sent by the only sovereign being in the world, God. It's important to understand why the Bible says he's the only sovereign. You see, because they were taught in that day that Caesar was sovereign. And in fact, he was a god. There was even an imperial cult that worshipped him as a divine being. And here the Bible says, no, 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 no. The only sovereign will send Christ. There's only one. He'll be sent by God the Father. This is really important to understand. If you feel tossed about by the crooked and corrupt forces or authorities in your life, you feel like you can't believe some of the things that our government is doing or believing or endorsing. If You feel like you can't stomach some of the things you see on the news. And then you look globally and you feel like you can't even believe your eyes at some of the things that are happening. And then your heart starts to fail and you say, is good going to prevail You need to be reminded that there is only one sovereign, and God will prevail. God will not let darkness win. He is the only one, and His will will prevail. What's interesting is this, though. While God's will and His throne sits unrivaled in heaven, the Bible teaches that Jesus shares in this sovereignty of the Father wait a minute, there's only one who is sovereign, right? And yet Jesus came and will come with the full sovereignty of God at his disposal. I thought that was only true of God the Father. Well, now we find out it's true of Christ. What does that make him? Something that's only true of God is true of Christ. King of kings is a phrase used first in Deuteronomy 10:17. Lord of lords, God of gods, It's an Old Testament term of God that's applied to Jesus twice in the New Testament book of Revelation. Jesus is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Revelation 19.16 says this, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So something that's only true of God is true of Jesus. And the King of Kings is manifesting his sovereign authority By sending the king of kings, his son. The full sovereignty of God belongs to God alone, and yet Christ will appear with it. That's why we believe Jesus is not just a prophet or a great teacher. He's God, the son. He comes bearing all the sovereignty of the father with him. He will come from the king of kings to be the king of kings. He will come from the sovereign ruler of the universe to be the sovereign ruler of the universe. The problem is this, we don't want a king. Humanity does not want a king. We made that perfectly clear to God when he sent his son the first time. And we butchered him. And we sent him back where he came from. Humanity doesn't want a king. One of the most humbling and honest moments you will ever have in your life is when you admit that you would prefer a universe with a dead God? I would. Back when I was walking without the Lord, I wanted nothing to do with Him. I wanted my way. I don't want anyone to stand in my way. I want my pleasure. I want other people to bring me that pleasure. And I can fancy it up, but at the heart of it all, I did not want a God or a king to tell me what to do. did not want anyone else to tell me what to believe. That's the heart each one of us is born with. It's a rebellious heart that rises up against the authority of God. So God had to send a king, and we crucified the king. But God's going to send the king again. Not not to bring salvation at that point, or to offer people another chance. He's going to send his king to reign. He will come with the wrath of God, the fury of God, but he will rescue those who are waiting for him. God will prevail. We live in a world that's rising up in rebellion against God. Have you been following what's going on in Baltimore? Big revolt, protests, people rising up because of injustice. Some rising up because of injustice, some rising up just to create more problems and injustice. There's some pictures here of what's going on in Baltimore and uh, you've got pictures of vehicles set on fire and Here's another picture. You've got the police standing to try and hold authority together and protect local business owners. Some people get torn. They don't even know which side to be on. Check this out. This is a famous picture now of a mom getting her son off the street. What are you doing out here? Get back home. You're not rioting. You're coming home. And that's us, right? We're stuck in this, we're stuck in this spiritual revolution, this uprising against the authority of God. Only in this circumstance, God Is perfect. We have no legitimate, legal, righteous appeal. He is a perfect, holy, awesome God, and we are completely unjustified in rising up against Him. But we do. We'd rather Him not reign. But God will prevail. How will He do it? God will prevail in Christ. This is why we must guard the gospel. Do you long for a world better than the one you were born into? Is this world okay with you? you fine with the world as it is, staying as it is for the next 5,000 years? Oh, I'm, I'm good with it. I wouldn't change a thing. Is that really your heart? Or is there something inside of you that knows things should be different? Is there a large part of you that feels outrage at what you see in this world? How is it going to get better, though? Who is going to set things straight? Are we just going to keep giving humanity another crack at it? How have we done so far? Terribly. Are we just going to let that continue? War? Famine? Injustice? Plague? Assault? I think you long to see the world set straight. No more riots, no more racial hatred, no more injustice, no more crooked courts, no more deceptive politicians. You know the world should be that way. How? How will it happen? It will happen when God, the only sovereign, sends his son to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's our hope. That's our only hope. That's our only hope. If we don't guard that truth about Christ, then there is no hope. If we let that go and start preaching or believing any other thing, all hope is lost. There's no other way. We've got to guard the saving truth about Christ. He's coming back soon soon. He'll be sent by the sovereign ruler of your universe to be the sovereign ruler of your universe. Here's the next one. He'll be sent by the one who has immortality to give. You can write that down. He's the only one. Jesus will be sent by the one who has immortality to give. It says here in verse 15, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, verse 16, verse 16, who alone has immortality. Only one being biblically that has immortality. You see, they were being taught that their Caesars had immortality. To all immortal, the conquering Caesar, forever and ever, blah, blah, blah. Only one has immortality, God. But he's sending his son. God has immortality. God's the only eternal being who's ever lived. Sometimes people will ask, well, then who made God? Have you heard that question before? Well, if God made everything, then who made God? See, what they don't understand is life is something that is intrinsic to God. It's his. He is self-sustaining. God is a self-generating being. Nothing gave him life. He's dependent on no one and nothing for anything necessary for existence. He's the only eternal being, the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator. That's what eternal means. He never came into existence. There was never a time where he failed to exist. You were not around forever. There is a point where you came into this world screaming your head off. Give me food! Ah!" You needed life and you needed all those around you to keep that life going. Not God. He's always had life. It's something he has within himself and it's something that he alone can give to lifeless things. Only God. It's fascinating, though, that the New Testament, the Bible, shows that Jesus also has life in himself to give. Every other person had to get life from somebody else Jesus somehow has life within himself. Do you want some evidence on that? Let me give you some evidence on that. What about creation? The whole world didn't exist. Someone had to give life to our universe. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, referring to Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and for him. The Bible teaches Jesus gave life to everything in the universe. I thought he was just a good teacher. I thought he was just a helpful man who shared some proverbs for life. I thought he was a cultural revolutionary like Confucius. Uh, The Bible teaches that he made the universe. He gave life to everything that lacked it. What about the resurrection? That's more evidence. Creation is evidence. The resurrection, he brought people back from the dead. When their life had run out, he gave it back to them. That shows that he had life in himself to give. John five twenty one. Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus alone can give you life after your life in this world expires. Jesus predicted, Jesus sometimes would just say things that would just freak people out. He'd be telling little stories about seed and goat and sheep, but then he'd say something that it would freak everybody out. And he said, do not be surprised that I say this. One day, those who are in their grave will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come back to life. What? Your voice, your vocal cords, yeah, have the power to raise every dead being back to life? Did you just say that? How can anyone claim he was just a good guy, like my buddy Stu, nice to animals and children? Uh, He said that he's going to one day rip you up out of your tomb with his vocal cords. He can bring the dead back to life. Jesus has life to give. Creation is evidence of that. Resurrection is evidence of that. His pre-existence is also evidence of that. Jesus talked like he had been around forever. Okay, so next time you go to the family party, go up to your weirdest relative who says kooky things and just stump them. Just try this out. Just be like, yeah, well, you know, before the universe existed, I thought, you know, and then just say something. Talk like you were around before the universe existed because that's what Jesus did. It'll freak your weird relative right out. Jesus did that. He talked not only about what things were like when creation was like just made, you know? Before it was made, when there wasn't even anything but an eternal spiritual being, Jesus said he was there. He claimed to be there. When God told Moses his name, what did he say? My name is, tell them that I am has said, I am. That's actually, a sounds simple. It's profound because nobody else can say that and make it true about that. You can't say, I am, as if it's always been true about you because it hasn't always been true about you. There was a point when you wasn't. And there will be a point when you will be no more. Where is he? He isn't. He was. He isn't anymore. Only God can say, I am ever-existing, self-existent, it's profound. It's only true of God. So imagine the shock when Jesus was in a spat with the Pharisees and Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. He put God's name tag on himself and they tried to stone him to death for it. Jesus claimed to have immortality and he claimed to be able to give it to others. Evidenced in creation, in resurrection, in his preexistence, and in salvation. In John seventeen two to 3 Jesus said, Since you have given him, that's the Son of authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Why do we have to guard the gospel? Because Jesus is coming sent by the only one who can give you immortality. And Jesus is sent as the only one who can give you immortality. Something, again, that's only true of God is true of Christ. And when Christ appears, when he comes back, he's the only one who can ever give you this thing called eternal life. Nobody else can give it to you, which is why we have to guard the truth of the gospel. You let it go in your personal walk. Oh, I think there are other ways. Who knows how many different ways people can be saved. You have let go of the only one who can bring eternal life. And he's coming with it. Americans believe in the afterlife of some sort. In 2003, the Barna Group polled Americans and found 81% of Americans believe in the afterlife. What do they believe about it, though? 64% believe they are going to heaven. 5% think they'll be reincarnated. 5% think they'll no longer exist. 0.5% of people think they're going to hell. 0.5. 24%? What do you think happens after this life, after you choose a billion different things, and then you're, you know, you're going to, here before some eternal being and have to give account for that, you're going to have it? One in four. It's the best I got. Shrug of the shoulders. What a risk. Leaving this life, having no clue what's coming in the next life. Jesus is coming back, sent by the only one with immortality, sent as the only one with immortality. And if you don't have him, the Bible says you don't have life. There's nothing good waiting for you in the next life without Christ. You need to settle that in your heart right now. If you're one of the one in four who's doing this, it's time to nail that down. Guard the gospel, because Christ will soon return, sent by the sovereign ruler to become the sovereign ruler, sent by the only one who has immortality, as the only one with immortality. Write this down. Sent by God who cannot be seen or known without Christ. It says here, In verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. I don't know what you know about God, what you believe about God, what you think about God, but one of the biblical fundamental truths about God is this. You can't ever see him. You're blind spiritually. You can't see him. Do you know what it's like to not be able to see? Last year I told you the story of how I scratched my eye. Remember that? Something got in my eye and I got it out right away. It was like this, what a piece of wood. And I didn't even know until that night, but I woke up in the middle of the night in excruciating pain. My eye was throbbing, and if I kept my eye open, it would water and the light would hurt it. If I kept my eye closed, it would start throbbing. It was 2 in the morning and I couldn't go anywhere to get it. I had to wait to go to the eye doctor when he got in at like 9 the next day. I found out from him the next day that I had torn a flap in my eye. Like every time I blinked, this flap moved, which is why there was excruciating pain. So the doctor gave me a little medicine to try and numb it up. And he told me it's better to put a contact over it to try and you know, let it heal. Well, then an infection got into the cut. And so the contact got stuck onto the eyeball. And I went back the next day. I woke up the next day and my whole eye had fogged over. I couldn't see. Um, you know how you get in your car in winter and the Front windshield totally fogs over. You can't see anything out front. I couldn't, I couldn't see anything. I told Lauren, I said, I, I can't see my hand. I can't, I can't see anything. It's just a glare. So I went into the doctor and he said, well, I got to get that contact off. Maybe that's what's doing it. And he had to use these tweezers. I tell you what, it was so, it felt like he was using an ice skate. Like, I can't explain to you the pain, I, worse than dental pain, and I know dental pain. Worse, and he got it off, and I went, "Woo!" I still can't see. Uh Uh-oh! It's not the contact; it's the eye. My whole eye had fogged up. So they did tests, and they found out that there was this, you know, invasive uh, infection, and it was, you know, infiltrated and everything. And so they started running tests. I kept saying, "What are you? What are you testing me for?" They wouldn't tell me. So I found out later they thought I had MRSA in the eye. Mercy anywhere is bad. In the I kept saying, what does that mean? No one would tell me, all right? They kept lying. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. No... Thankfully, it was a form of infection that could be treated with the eye drops. So after a two-month period, you know, my eyesight finally got back to where I could see. Now, I say that because when you are born, you can't see God. Can you see Him? No. Can you see Him now? No. doesn't matter how many... Can you see him? No, I still can't see him. I can't see God. Something has to change in your life to give you the ability to see God. Jesus cures spiritual blindness. You can't see God without him. You'll never see God without him. Jesus is the only one who can help you see God, and Jesus is the only God you'll ever see. How do we know that? Well, in Exodus thirty-three twenty, God told Moses, but he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. God dwells in unapproachable light. You can't go to him. He has to come to you. He must manifest his presence in a way that we can understand and relate to and survive. But Jesus claimed that he could see God. Wait a minute. No one can see God and live, but Jesus claimed to see God. Who can see God and live? Only God. Who did Jesus claim to be? John 6.46 says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. John 14.9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Everything we can see of God is in his Son. The only God you'll ever see is Jesus. The only way you'll ever see God is Jesus. When Jesus appears, it's the only hope you ever have of seeing God forever. We have to guard the gospel. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If we let go of the gospel, if you walk away from the truth of Christ, if you trust any other way to get yourself to heaven, you will never see God. Never. Never. That's why we have to guard the gospel. And there's one final reason we have to guard the gospel. He'll return soon, sent by the sovereign ruler of the universe, and sent by the one who has immortality to give, sent by the one who can't be seen or known without Christ. Write this down, sent to be king forever. Sent to be king forever. The last phrase here is this, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. To him, this is the one who is sending his son, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And guess what? When Christ appears, he comes as the one who will have honor and eternal dominion forever. God's throne and his rule will be established in his son and with his son, which is why the Bible says, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. We have to guard the gospel. Listen. If you walk away from faith in Christ, you walk away from the groom who will be forever devoted to you in love. You leave the one who rules all creation without rival. You turn from the only one who can give you life beyond the grave. You depart from the only one who can show you God. You defy the king who will rule heaven forever. If you walk away from Jesus, you walk away from everything God is and everything God is doing and you have hope for nothing waiting for you in the next life. If our church walks away from Christ and starts teaching any other thing, we are making spiritually bankrupt followers of lies. We have to guard the gospel because Jesus is coming back. Why don't we close in prayer? And I want to just read a few verses over you as we bow our heads, close our eyes. I don't know what you've been through in life. God does. I don't know what you're going through in life right now. God does. But I can tell you your future. If you follow Christ, I can tell you your future. It says in Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit Amen, Lord Jesus, come. Come to establish the sovereign rule of the Father. Come to bring the promised love of the groom. Come to bring immortality and eternal life to those who are waiting for you. We Pray that you would come. We Pray that you would come to be king over us, over all, as we know we desperately need it. Come to show us God. Our hope is in you and in no one else, in no other name. We give you worship and praise. It's in your name we pray to the King of Kings. Amen.